Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 to 17. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord will is. Uh, but the passage, even though it's a shorter passage, the passage unveils a paradox that recurs regularly through our lives. It's a paradox between wisdom and courage. Everyone would agree that wisdom and courage are both virtues. I mean, you do not have to be a follower of Jesus to say that it would be a good thing to be wise and it's a good thing to be courageous. We would all agree that it's something that should be pursued, and quite frankly, there are qualities that all of us would want to, someone to describe us with. We, like, we would like it for people to say, oh, they're very wise, or they're very courageous. And yet there's a paradox between these two, which I want to unpack for you today. We'll get to that paradox in a moment, but first let me show you where wisdom and courage show up in these three short verses in Ephesians 5. It's pretty obvious where wisdom appears. It's right there in verse 15, where uh, Paul writes, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. There's wisdom. In a sense, what Paul is saying by encouraging the Ephesian Christians, and by extension, the church in New York, us, what Paul is saying is everything you learned about wisdom back in the Old Testament Back in the Hebrew Scriptures, back in the book of Proverbs, for example, or Ecclesiastes, or Song of Solomon, or Lamentations, or Job, those things still apply. Even though we're on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, all of that wisdom that was passed on back there in the Hebrew Scriptures is still applicable today. In fact, living wisely is a right response to the gospel. Now, he says there, be very careful then how you live, but that word live is actually, literally, it's the verb walk. And it's the fifth time in this very small letter he uses that verb walk. As we've walked through the book of Ephesians the last few uh, weeks, you may have noticed the first three chapters were really heavily focused on here are the things that God has done. Paul is expounding for us all the rich beauties of the gospel. Not even all the rich, but some of the rich beauties of the gospel. And I mean, there are parts of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 that scale alpine heights, and you look down on the totality of creation and say, wow, God, your plan to redeem humanity is far beyond what we could have imagined. And then in chapter 4, with the text last week, and then moving through chapter 6, the second half of the book, is all about how we respond to that gospel. Remember, chapter 4, verse 1 says that as the prisoner of the Lord, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of this calling, to live a life that's in keeping with this great beauty of the gospel that he spent three chapters describing. And it's all in this second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, that he starts talking about the way we are to walk. And as I said, there are five different times, five different descriptions of how we are to walk. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, walk worthy of this calling. Here's this calling in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this uh, vocation that has been given to us by Jesus, by his work 
by his life, death, and resurrection. So walk worthy of that. You say, well, how do I walk worthy of that? Well, verse 17 of chapter 4 says, well, don't walk like everyone else. Don't walk as pagans do. Don't walk as the godless do. Live a life that is different from the rest of society. Sort of like I, I, I used to be a youth pastor, and I had teenagers who went into the Marine Corps. Any Marines here? Any Marines? One of the things I've heard Marines, whether they're recruits, whether they're in boot camp, whether they're active, reserved, or retired, I've heard Marines across the board say, once a Marine, always a Marine, right? It just doesn't leave you. Your status has changed. And that's what Paul is saying. Once a follower of Jesus, always a follower of Jesus. Your status has changed. And that doesn't mean that, well, if you name the name of Jesus, you have to wear frumpy clothes. It doesn't mean that now you have to, like, eschew coffee. Hallelujah. Uh, It doesn't mean that you have to vote for a particular political party or start a Christian political party. It doesn't mean that. What it means, third, is walk in the way of love. Chapter 5, verse 1. That would be different from the rest of society, would it not? If you actually showed selfless compassion for other people, that would be different from what you see in the rest of society. And then he goes on and says in chapter 5, verse 8, that you're to walk as children of light. God has turned the lights on for us. Uh, Kevin was in the chapel this morning when it was dark, starting to get things set up, and a furry animal ran across his feet. Thankfully, it was not a rat, it was a cat, but still, right, still. (laughs) God has turned the lights on for us. We don't walk around in darkness anymore. We can see the cats and the rats and everything else. We don't have to go bumping through life because God's turned the lights on. So walk as if the lights are turned on. And then in this passage, he says, walk as the wise. This is the summary of the worthy walk, that If you actually live your life according to the book of Proverbs, that would be a right response to the gospel. So there's wisdom. No detailed instructions, just live as wise. And I say there's a paradox between that and courage. Where is courage in this passage? Courage actually appears in the very next phrase. In verse 16. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise... Well, how do I do that? Here's how you live as wise. By making the most of every opportunity. This is how we live wisely. Literally, the phrase translates by redeeming the time. To redeem something means to buy something back or to buy something at auction. It's as if Paul is saying, you have only so many hours in a day and you're getting something back for that investment. You're investing those hours. What are you getting back for the investment of your time? Redeem it. Make the most of it. Make sure you get a big payoff. And friends, that's where the matter of courage comes up. And thus our paradox. Because if we're going to redeem the time, if we're going to invest our hours, if we're going to make the most of every opportunity, you're talking about an incredible outlay of courage because you don't know at the beginning of an opportunity what the end of it will be, right? 
What if you had Apple stock and you're thinking about selling it? And the year is 1997. Now, in 1997, selling Apple stock might have made a lot of sense. And if this story actually describes you, I'm sorry for bringing up the pain of you selling your stock in Apple before they released the iPod, right? You don't know at the beginning of an opportunity what the result will be. There's no guarantee that what you invest those hours in actually will bear fruit. There's no guarantee when you put your money in something that it will actually give you the result that you want. You're planning on it. You're thinking about it. But do you see where it takes incredible courage to make the most of every opportunity? Because once you've been stung once or twice, you want to step back. Like, nope, not for me. Now, friends, here's the tension. We tend to think that wisdom is the opposite of courage. And what is wisdom? To us, wisdom looks like an old dude up on top of a mountain with a really long beard just sitting there contemplating the universe. Wisdom is taking things slowly. Wisdom is exercising carefulness. Wisdom is withholding an opinion until all the data are in. Wisdom is not jumping in with both feet, but sticking a toe in the water to make sure that it's just right. And so we set up in our minds this paradox between wisdom and courage. We set up this line, as it were, between faith and foolishness. Have you heard it described this way before? Like, is this action, faith, like bold, risk-taking courage? Or is it actually foolish and don't do it because it would not be wise? Is it foolish to quit a job before securing another job? Wisdom says, dude, find a job first. Courage says, go make an opportunity. And we sit in between that tension. And see, friends, that's a problem for us. It's a problem that we take these two virtues of wisdom and courage and pit them against each other. And it's a problem for us because Paul says that the way we live wisely is actually by acting courageously. The way we follow the book of Proverbs is to go for it. Now that's hard enough for us to grapple with. But this passage says there's more in play. There's at least two other factors in play. As we're sitting in, that, in those decision-making moments where we're trying to decide, is that, is that courageous to go for it or is it wise not to? And we're trying to discern, is there a line between faith and foolishness? That's hard enough. But Paul says there's two other factors in play. One is the external pull of society. He says we're to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. He's not saying that time is bad or that every 24-hour day is evil. He's saying that the times are bad. Like we live in hard times. There's many different ways that the times are bad. Most obviously the times are bad because of human sin and the brokenness that we have introduced by our sin. But beyond that, the times are bad because injury happens. The times are bad because financial loss happens. The times are bad because cancer happens. The times are bad because job loss happens. 
The days are evil. The times are bad. And that pull of society factors in. It's not just that we're trying to navigate this road of wisdom and courage and we don't see how they kind of fit together. But all the while, it's like we're facing a stiff crosswind. Like we're trying to walk this road and because the times are bad, it's blowing us off course. That's one of the factors that Paul mentions. But that's not the only one. Because in addition to that external factor of the times being bad, trying to blow us off course, there's also an internal problem. He says in the very next verse, for that reason, do not be foolish. Commentators note that the word be here really means become. Do not become foolish. What is he saying? He's saying that just because you're a follower of Jesus, just because you've been a follower of Jesus for five years, just because you've been a follower of Jesus for 25 years, does not inoculate you against acting like a fool. You can still become foolish no matter what has happened in your past. So you've got this external force, this wind that's blowing, right? Trying to knock us off course because the times are bad. And then you've got the problem of your own inertia. Like you're walking forward, but there's part of you that's always wanting to pull you back towards foolish living. Meanwhile, you're trying to take steps forward and you're perplexed because it's like, well, is this decision a wise decision? Or is it a courageous decision? I can't have both, so I'll pick one. And I'll go for it. And then, oh boy, I hope it works out. Or it's like, no, I'm not going to go in because I think it would be wise. See, we're called to walk in wisdom by being courageous, but the world blows against us, tries to blow us off course, and our own hearts pull us backward. And that leaves us in precisely the opposite place of where verse 17 ends, understanding what the Lord's will is. We have no idea what it is that God wants us to do. Should I stay in my job or should I leave? Is it wise or is it courageous? And then after you make a decision, hmm, did I make the right decision or not? Has that ever kept you up at night? This week? (laughs) Oh, dear. And when you feel like you've been pulled away, driven along by society, away from your first love, and when you feel like you've been pulled by your own heart from growth in areas where you are weak, it can leave you disillusioned. Man, when I was a kid, it was all so clear. When I was new to the faith, I mean, all of this just made such great sense and I could see everything, but not so much anymore. There's a whole lot more gray. It's more than just disillusionment with promises made in sermons like this. I mean, it's a very humbling line, but it's so true. Andy Minio in one of his songs talks about how he spent, he spent half, of his, half of his adult life unlearning lies that he heard in a dumb sermon. It's a hard line to hear as a pastor to wonder how many well-intentioned things did I communicate in a sermon that somebody else has to actually unlearn. But that disillusionment goes beyond that all the way to God and to ourselves. 
We come to a passage like this and say, you know, all of my Christian life, I've wanted to be wise, I've wanted to understand his will, and I've wanted to make the most of every opportunity, but here I am, and I don't know where to go. All I know is I was meant for more than where I am. So friends, understand, I'm not talking about a merely abstract problem. We can joke about it, and that's good. But I'm talking about a problem that will actually lead some of you to be tempted to throw away your faith. This just doesn't make any sense. Just all of it. And ditching. And friends, I'm here to tell you today that there's hope. I've been sent by God today to be here today, to speak to you today, to let you know that there's hope. And the hope begins when you're willing to acknowledge something hard. The hope begins when you're willing to acknowledge that you're not the wise person, but the fool. When you're willing to acknowledge that you're not the courageous person, you can put a brave face on, make everyone think you're courageous. But hope begins when you actually acknowledge that you're fearful. See, the hope that God holds out to you today is not that ultimately you can become the wise and courageous person you are meant to be. But can I put it this way? That's a fringe benefit of the hope, but it's not the hope. The hope that God holds out to you today is far more glorious than you being the wise and courageous person you always wanted to be. For the hope that God holds out to you in your brokenness is that there is one who always lived as the wise one. There is someone. There is someone who always made the most of every opportunity. There is someone who not only fully understood what the Lord's will is and was, but who also fully submitted himself to the Lord's will at every turn in his life. Friends, the hope that God holds out to us in our foolishness and our fearfulness, the hope that God holds out to us is Jesus. He's the wise one. He is the courageous one. He is the one who lived the wise and courageous life that you and I have failed to live. And he did it to cover up our foolishness and to cover up our fearfulness and to make us sons and daughters of the one true God. But that's not all. Because after Jesus lived the life we should have lived, Jesus died the death that we should have died because of our foolishness and because of our fearfulness. Because we refuse to trust God. Because we have refused to follow him boldly. Because we have not been able to obey him completely. You see this verse that's up on the screen is from the beginning of this letter. We have redemption through his blood, which means that God, through Jesus' death on the cross, has released us. We've been set free. And that means we've been forgiven. For all those times we look back and say, oh, that was the wrong decision. Yeah, you know what? When Jesus went to the cross, he knew you were going to make that decision and he loves you anyway. Your foolishness and your fearfulness are no threat to Jesus, the Savior. And friends, he did not stay in the grave. 
On the third day, Jesus rose again, triumphing over death and hell and the grave. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the hope that God holds out to you today. Jesus lived the life that you have failed to live. And then he died the death that you should have died, only to rise again so that he might give us new life and to usher in the renewal of all things. You say, well, what difference does that make for me? Because I still have this tough decision to make. I'm not sure how that relates to my disillusionment, much less how it makes me wise and courageous. Let me try to address that as directly as I can as I conclude. And I'll do it by going back to that last phrase in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, understand what the Lord's will is. Now, when I hear that phrase, the will of God, I have a very particular notion of what that means, and maybe some of you have the same notion. Because for a long time, I heard about God's will spoken about as God's will for your life. God has a plan for your life, Matthew, right? As a very individualized view of God's will. It's not wrong. It's just one-sided. Because when Paul talks about God's will, he talks about it not in individualistic terms. He talks about it in cosmic terms. I just quoted that verse, Ephesians 1, 7. Three verses later, look at what he says. Actually, not even three verses later. Uh, A verse or two later. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, what is the mystery of your will, God? It is to bring unity to everything. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything that's been disrupted, pulled out of joint, God is going to put it all back together again. That is the will of God. Yes, God has a will for your life. He has a will for my life. But it's part of a much bigger story. He has brought our microscopic lives into his cosmic story. So Jesus then speaks into your disillusionment and says, yes, you're right. You were meant for so much more. Leave it to me to bring it to pass. Leave it to me. Friends, he's got you. He's got you. You can't see the end of your story, but you can see the end of the story where every broken part of your life, every broken relationship, every area of sin, everything that has you weeping, All of it, God is going to bring to unity. He's going to make it all whole. The day of Shalom will come. That's the end of the story. I don't know how the end of my story will be written. But we know the end of the story. So you say, okay, that But I still have a decision to make. Do I go for it or play it safe? Do I live wisely or do I live courageously? How do we resolve that tension? We resolve the tension by walking by faith. Walking by faith. Walking by faith in the one who is wise because we're not wise. Walking by faith in the one who is courageous because we're not courageous. 
And we're not walking by faith. And here, here, here's the thing that I hope is helpful for you. As I was pondering this, th- this is the point. Like if you're stuck in a decision, right? What I would suggest when we're in that, we're feeling like, I don't know which way to go. You know, society is blowing me this way. My heart's pulling me that way. And I've got to make a decision this way. And, and I don't know where that line between faith and foolishness is. But you know what's actually happening? In that moment, what I think is happening, at least for me, is I am tempted to put faith in my own wisdom or in my own courage, right? I'm trying to figure out how much do I have on the ledger on these two sides? Like, do I have all the information? All right, well, then it's going to be a wise decision because I trust the work that I did. Or I'm trusting that courageous side of me. It's like, what could happen out of this? What, what, what's the outcome with this risk? Okay, I, believe, I trust it. But friends, Jesus is not calling you to trust your wisdom or your courage. He's, trusting you, he, he's calling you to trust him. To trust him. And so, yeah, do your work. Do your homework. Put it all down on paper. Talk to counselors. Get help. All of it. Friends, recognize that you don't have enough wisdom and you don't have enough courage to make that decision. And it's okay. Jesus has got you. And this is like a very, there's a very personal application for my family with this very point right now. Because we've had to walk through some decisions in the last few weeks and we had a very narrow window in which to make it. And so, I'm, I mean, I've been thinking about this, like, for me. And it's like, is this wise or is it courageous? Friends, set the question aside and turn your eyes to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need to make a decision. I need to make a decision right now about this. The best decision I can make is this. I'm not trusting my wisdom. I'm not trusting my courage. I'm trusting you. And whatever comes of it, keep my eyes on you. See, the gospel actually frees you to go ahead and make that decision and even be wrong because Jesus loves you. Let's pray. Thank you for your unfailing love for us, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would give us faith to believe you, to walk with you, not to walk ahead of you, not to trail behind you, to believe that you are with us, that you are good, and that even in the hard decisions of our lives, you are present, somehow unfolding all things in such a way that in the end, you'll make everything one. Do bless us with wisdom and courage as we trust you. But help us never to trust our wisdom or our courage, but look to you alone. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.